This Day in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that reveals a little bit more about history day by day. I'm Gabe Lusier, and today we're looking at an important milestone in the struggle for American women to be accepted as independent citizens, the opening of the nation's first successful hotel for single working women. The day was March 2nd, 1903. The Women's Hotel opened its doors as the only hotel in New York City to provide lodging exclusively for professional women. At the time, it was widely considered unseemly for a single woman to stay at a hotel. In fact, it was general practice in most respectable hotels to never admit a woman as a guest unless she was accompanied by her husband or was checking in as a member of a family with a patriarch. However, by the turn of the 20th century, long-standing restraints on women's behavior were gradually giving way. A growth in manufacturing and industry had boosted demand for female labor, and many roles in business and the arts were now being filled by women for the first time. There were also new opportunities for education, as more institutions began accepting female students into advanced programs. Unfortunately, most cities' housing markets didn't keep pace with this progress. As a result, when thousands of single working women began moving to urban areas, they had a difficult time finding somewhere to live. At first, cities made little attempt to accommodate the new growing workforce. Many women had to settle for less than ideal living conditions like a shared bedroom in a tenement building, or a rented room in a predominantly male boarding house. Those kinds of accommodations weren't only uncomfortable for the female lodgers, they were also viewed with suspicion by the rest of society. At the time, many looked at single women as nothing but future wives and mothers. This resulted in an oppressive focus on preserving female chastity and innocence, or at least the appearance of it. So on one hand, the country was changing and finally offering new opportunities for women. But on the other hand, many of the long-standing expectations of a male-centric society remained in place. This tension continued for decades in cities all over the country, with New York City being one of the first places to take on the challenge of providing decent urban housing for young working women. The idea of a hotel just for women was first proposed in 1869 by a retail store owner named Alexander T. Stewart. He had noticed that his stores employed a lot of young women, most of whom struggled to find appropriate housing. To remedy the problem, and to open a new stream of revenue for himself, Stewart began building what he called the Hotel for Working Women. He described it as the first hotel of its kind, a place for, quote, industrious young women to foster individuality and self-dependence, in which lodging, food, and warmth, with other essentials, may be furnished at the lowest possible rates. The hotel was completed in 1878, but unfortunately, Stewart didn't live to see it. His successors had less faith in the project than he had. 
Within a year of its opening, the property was sold and converted into the Park Avenue Hotel, an establishment that mostly catered to wealthy men. The idea of a women's hotel fell by the wayside for nearly 30 years, but eventually the housing crisis for working women became too great to ignore. In 1897, a group of reformers partnered with high-profile investors and founded the Women's Hotel Company. Its stated mission was to build, quote, high-grade hotels for the exclusive accommodation of business and professional women. After a brief delay due to the Spanish-American War, the group was finally ready to start construction in 1901. The company purchased two lots of land on East 29th and East 30th Streets, and then hired a British-born architect named Robert W. Gibson to design the 12-story hotel. Although it had been funded by a mix of female and male investors, including John D. Rockefeller, by the time the hotel opened in 1903, much of the stock in the company was owned by individual women who just believed in the idea. When the Women's Hotel opened its doors on March 2nd, it welcomed both overnight and long-term guests. In total, there were 416 single rooms and apartments, most of which were rented for $1.50 per day. The rooms themselves were small and came equipped only with a sink. The three dozen or so women on each floor had to share four common bathtubs and four toilets. An early promotional brochure boasted that the hotel was, quote, well-appointed, thoroughly modern, strictly fireproof, and equipped with every facility for the comfort of its guests. Women's wit has been used to provide the little necessities and comforts so much appreciated by her. To be more specific, the hotel's amenities included a drugstore, a tailor shop, a manicurist, a shoe polishing parlor, a newspaper stand, a library, a rooftop promenade, a private dining room, and a separate restaurant open to the public. Male guests were only permitted on the first floor, but the workforce did include some men. Initially, the hotel employed men to carry suitcases and to work the elevators. In the hotel's second year, the bellboys were replaced with women, who were considered more reliable by the manager. The male elevator operators stuck around until 1917, at which point they too were replaced with women. On its first night in operation, the women's hotel was fully occupied, with 500 registered guests and about 200 more on the waiting list. It was a successful opening by any measure, but that didn't keep the hotel from being mocked in the press. For instance, the New York Times wrote that, quote, There is something essentially funny in the implications of a hotel conducted exclusively for women. The Times also noted the presence of the bellboys, which it considered a necessity, as suitcases, quote, would be too heavy for girls. In its early years of operation, this jeering press coverage turned the hotel into something of a tourist attraction. In 1904, one resident wrote a letter to the Times complaining that groups of people had started pulling up to the hotel to gawk at the guests as if they were, quote, a new kind of freak. Male outsiders may have viewed the women's hotel as an object of amusement, but for the female professionals who stayed there, it was nothing short of a godsend. One guest hailed it as, quote, so superior to the New York boarding and lodging house that it cannot be considered in the same breath. 
If you're wondering what kind of women frequented the hotel, we actually have a nice breakdown thanks to the 1910 census. It shows that the women's hotel served a wide variety of professionals, including artists, teachers, bookkeepers, musicians, writers, nurses, stenographers, and at least one insurance broker. The average age of guests was between 45 and 50, though a few were in their 20s and some were in their 70s. In addition to housing women, the hotel also hosted women's organizations. For example, in 1907, it served as the headquarters for the Interurban Women's Suffrage Council. In 1920, the founding company sold the property to the Martha Washington Hotel Corporation, at which point it was renamed the Martha Washington Women's Hotel. It continued to be operated under that name for most of the 20th century, and even as societal views shifted, the hotel continued to serve only women until 1998. By that point, the 95-year-old building was looking pretty run down and more than a little old-fashioned. In recent years, it's been renovated and reopened under new names by several different owners. At the time of recording, it's known as the Redberry New York Hotel, and rooms are available to both women and men, single or otherwise. Just be prepared to pay a little more than $1.50. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.